I have, um, I have. You can't see it because Tom Holland <laughs> is currently uh, absorbing me in his bloody Coriolanus. But, yeah, that's great. Uh, <laughs> there is a. Uh, I got seized candy lollipops that are mint cream. Oh, what? that is so California. Oh. But I just, um, I can't. You can kind of see it if I just hold it right here before yeah. it. AJ, I do want to point out. I, I do want to point out that you said Tom Holland as Corey. Oh, did I? Yeah, yeah I was really confused. I was like, <laughs> no, I know he's he wanted to play the, Bond. He's already yeah. doing Coriolanus. Holy, he's bird. the cutest we're, we're, little Coriolanus you'll ever meet. It's it's an all twink production of Coriolanus, exactly as the Romans would have done it. Yeah, hell yeah, dude. Welcome to the worst of all possible worlds, the world's first and only all twink podcast. <laughs> I'm the worst of all possible Joshes. I'm the worst of all possible AJs. And I'm the worst of all possible Brian's. And joining us today, we have a very exciting guest. Uh, he is the studio design director at Obsidian Entertainment. You might know him from his games, including Fallout New Vegas, Pillars of Eternity, or Pillars of Eternity 2 Deadfire. Alternately, if you follow him on Twitter, you might know him from his beautiful vocal stylings. He is the one and only Josh Sawyer. Welcome to the podcast, Josh. Well, hello. Thanks for having me. The core of this episode is going to be the anus. The, the, core, anus. Of the, anus. the core of the anus. Oh. Hey, got him. <laughs> that's, that's our first one. Pew, pew. I like how you cut in. I was like, so that, many more to come. I was talking the way that I was talking. I'm like spinning my wheels, trying to think of what to say next. So thank mm -hmm. you for that, AJ. Um, no, no, I was, I was waiting for the anus. Joke. I was really impressed with your live episode of No Cartridge, the the one that you appeared at Caveat with that uh, our Josh produced, and you True. talked about your background in theater. Yes. And so this was partly me being like, hey, you should you should you should email Josh and be like, hey, let's talk about theater on the podcast. Nice. Very good. <laughs> right. I don't actually get that many opportunities to talk about it. So, yeah, I feel like uh, that that would have that seemed refreshing enough and not just like more conversation about New Vegas or something, yeah. although I'm sure that'll come up a little bit with the whole ancient Roman thing. Sure, but. sure. <laughs> um, and yeah, they, when we sort of went back and forth a little bit and uh we went through a couple potential things to talk about. Mm -hmm. And I think, Josh, the, if I, re I believe you brought up the idea of talking about Coriolanus, right? Yeah, because I think we were chatting back and forth and I had said maybe the Henriad or, or right. the, the mm -hmm. King, sort of, um, mm -hmm. which I really love the Henriad, Henry V specifically, the Brana adaptation. Don't really like the King very much. Um, and then, but then the more I thought about it, the more I thought Coriolanus as a modern adaptation, well, one, it was a modern adaptation yeah, and it yeah. just felt like a little, maybe more relatable to our current political climes and things right. like that than something like Henry V, which is like, oh, the burdens of a king, like fuck off. <laughs> so yeah, Coriolanus actually seems maybe a little more relatable. Yeah. yeah, the moral of Henry V is if you want to be a good king, you have to be really good at going in disguise and tricking other people into thinking that you're one of them. <laughs> yes. And Coriolanus is like, I don't want to be one of you. I'm better <laughs> than all of you. It's true. He, like, fucking loves how good he is at doing things. And I, re I remember seeing the trailer for this movie when it was going to come out and just thinking, wow, this is the last thing anyone would be remotely interested in because it's a modern Coriolanus of all things. I mean, like Coriolanus 
isn't one of the, you know, it's not the Hamlet, Macbeth, nope. Lear, Romeo and Juliet. It's also not one of the canonized bad plays like King John or Titus sure. Andronicus. Yeah, yeah. It's it's more like all's well that ends well, you know, just one of those things that like people have never it's, heard it's of in, before. It's firmly in the who gives a shit category. Yeah, you <laughs> yeah. bring it up and people will say Coriolanus. I hardly knew her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's it, it's right there with like um, Antony and Cleopatra, which he wrote right around yeah. the same time. Nobody fucking remembered these plays. My if, brain. If they're done. It's to make a statement. Anyway, my ahead, brain AJ. cannot, for the life of me, uh, at least until today, because I had never seen Coriolanus. I had mm. never read Coriolanus before doing it for this uh, podcast. But the uh, I always got it confused with Cymbeline in my head. Turns out uh, very yeah. different plays. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But who knows what happens in Cymbeline either? Uh, uh, I, get, uh, I think the protagonist protagonist gets beheaded halfway through Cymbeline, right? Cool. And then I, I think there's like a beheading and they throw a, a thing around and this, okay. the, the, the title character of Cymbeline <laughs> is a king that appears in two scenes, I think, in the entire play. It's, a, cool. it's a mess. So, but so there's fun. what? There's like two, three Shakespeare plays that have beheadings in them then, right? So it's Cymbeline, Titus, and Macbeth. Sounds right. That sounds nice. nice. My, my mom actually saw Charlton Heston and Macbeth back in the 70s. Wow. Um, he was he was putting on the production with Vanessa Redgrave, actually. That's we'll crazy. Be talking about in a bit. Yeah. In, uh, in L.A. Yeah. And at the end of the play, it was very Anglo-Saxon. You know, they, they had the whole head on the pike at the end of the play and trotted it around the stage. And my mom went to stage door with her friends from her class. And as he came out, he was in his jogging gear because he jogged from the theater to his house every day. <laughs> nice. And she just goes. There he is! Points across the room, <laughs> runs over like the good Southern Baptist woman she is. Shakes his hand vigorously oh, and says, awesome. "Boy, your head looks great on your body." <laughs> <laughs> it's just a really normal thing to say to a guy. I love that. And and he he left. Uh, yeah. Mere moments later. Yeah. <laughs> um, he ran home. He did not jog yes. home that night. He, he ran. <laughs> Gotta get the speed up. But yeah, I mean Coriolanus definitely not one of the more produced plays in the canon, but still one that has a lot of interest both thematically and just as a play. And I also had not seen a production of Coriolanus. I had not seen an adaptation of Coriolanus. Yeah. So this was also my first exposure to it. Josh, had you is this a play that you had done before or that you'd seen this adaptation before? I'm curious I'm curious to hear about that from you. I did I had seen the the film. Um I remember when I was in college, I like briefly read about it, but like, and I was like, yeah, doesn't seem like anybody's done anything with this in a while. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, when I saw that Ray Fiennes was doing uh, an adaptation and I saw that it was modern, yeah, um, I thought it was interesting. And then when I, and I put off seeing it for a long time. And then when I actually watched it, I was like, this is pretty good. And yeah, as far as I was concerned, I was like, I can see why this is not like the classics of Bill Shakespeare, mm -hmm. but <laughs> as far as ones that work well adapted into a modern setting, I was like, actually, this is, I think this is a really good choice. Um, so it stuck with me. And then when Josh and I started rapping about this, I was like, uh, I think that would actually be a good topic. So, well, basically this was like Ray Fiennes' passion project. It was his first uh, movie that he ever directed. Uh, yeah. And he was encouraged to do it uh, by one of the producers of the constant gardener. And he assembled sort of a team because, you know, uh, John Logan came on pretty early on. Uh, Ray Fiennes pitched him on the idea. And then John Logan was like, yeah, no, I'm on board. I know exactly what to do with this. And like pumped out a script pretty quickly. And uh, he Not wanted hard to it do. And most of it's already written. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's true. But I mean, man, I mean, the, the no, he does a very cut, good job it's, with the it's flow. A yeah, very good adaptation. This thing flies in a yeah. way that a lot of other Shakespeare adaptations I've seen just absolutely doesn't. But uh, yeah, no, they had seen uh, the Hurt Locker had come out a couple years before, and uh, that was the aesthetic that they were going for. So they got uh, the DP from. Hurt Locker, and they also got, yep. I believe, the sound designer from Hurt Locker to come oh, on board, okay. which is why the sound in this movie is so incredible. Yes. I'm thinking, particularly the moment when, you know, spoilers, it's a Shakespearean tragedy, Coriolanus dies. What? Come on. <laughs> come I'm on. sorry, I know, it's very early on to be throwing those spoilers, but uh, when, when he gets stabbed, uh, uh, at the very end and all the sound cuts out, but you only hear like, the knife being pulled out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just like, oh, yeah, no, this is this is genius sound design. Yeah. Uh, it's actually also the reason that uh, uh, Jessica Chastain got uh, Zero Dark Thirty because Ray Fiennes showed Catherine Bigelow a cut of oh. Coriolanus. And she was like, I, I need her. I need her in that movie as like the grieving, you know, as, huh. as the woman at home. Well, that that confirms it. Coriolanus is a CIA op. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, actually, I think a lot of people probably forget, too, that that Ray Fiennes was in Hurt Locker for like one scene. What does he do? They they get ambushed in the desert and there's this long sniper scene where they have a 50 cal. They're trying to shoot their snipers that are are pinning them down. It's basically like Ray Fiennes and his group of guys. I don't know if they're soldiers or mercenaries, but they've captured two like high value targets Mm. and they're transporting them and they're like bickering about some shit. (laughs) And then, and then they come (laughs) under fire and they decide, okay, we have to defend ourselves because a bunch of their guys get shot up. And then there's this like grueling scene where they try to s- counter snipe these people sniping them, and uh, Ray Fiennes winds up getting uh, domed basically huh. in the process, and that's the end of him. But he's he's only there for that one scene. He's probably has like five minutes of screen time or something. But yeah. I feel like this is like one of the least controversial things I'm going to say uh, over the course of this podcast. <laughs> but Ray Fiennes looks good bald. Yeah, the man can really pull off a, a shaved head. Well, and it, um, it, it helps too that uh, unlike in his other uh, probably better known role where he's bald, uh, he has a nose. So yes. that's also <laughs> helpful. Step one to looking good bald. Well, look, I, I good, step- look good. Period. <laughs> right. Right. I, I think part of his connection with this this story as well as that that Coriolanus is one of the first plays he ever did, if not the oh, first okay. professional production. Was oh, he and that a, was one yeah. of his first? I think because he yeah, just re, I thought he had done it like a couple years before the movie came out. Like there was a, it's, there was it's a possible he did it. I mean, yeah, I feel like you, hmm. there's like 40 plays. You get through the loop of them. At some point, you just have to start. Round two. Again. Round two. So Coriolanus yeah. is, is, is interesting in, in terms of Shakespeare's own life, too, because the scholars tend to put it at, at the tail end of his career. It's very possibly his last ever tragedy. And he finished it immediately after doing Antony and Cleopatra mm-hmm. as well. Like this focus that he starts to get, not just on Roman stories, because Titus Andronicus is a really early pastiche, as is right. um, Pericles? Uh, the, com- the Comedy of Errors. There's mm. also Pericles, but Pericles is, a, is based on... We don't on talk it. about Pericles. It, Pericles is an English prose piece that Shakespeare probably did not write. It showed up in a folio that had... Five plays added to it, none of which we attribute to Shakespeare today, except for Pericles, for some reason. Every time I open my my, my complete works of Shakespeare to Pericles, it's just a blank page that just says, uh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) People were doing it a lot in 2016 for some reason. Yeah, I I remember that. There must be some Freudian element of people being afraid of Trump and then doing Pericles to cleanse themselves. And... 
which brings us to the Trump administration. Everyone mm-hmm. was doing modernized Shakespeare adaptations or talking about what should be the modernized Shakespeare adaptation to apply to Trump. And of course, the public got there first. We got with the Shakespeare Julius in the Caesar. park of oh, Julius God. Caesar. <laughs> and then uh, Laurel Loomer Laura got up Loomer. and disrupted it. You remember <laughs> and that? Then, and Jack Posobiec was standing up in the stands <laughs> as Laura Loomer's trying to run onto the stage shouting, you're all Goebbels. That you're was the coolest. <laughs> you are all Goebbels. You are all Nazis like Joseph Goebbels. This is Goebbels. You are all Goebbels. Josh, do you wow. remember that? Wasn't that the coolest no. fucking thing? No? Oh my <laughs> no. God. That's, that's the thing that launched Laura Loomer's sad short career. Wow. Um, yeah. That's crazy. It was, it was <laughs> I mean, so cool. We're talking uh, about Laura Lo- Loomer, but that's crazy. <laughs> uh, a former uh, a guest on the podcast, David Armstrong, and my roommate. I thought uh, you were going to say Laura Loomer. <laughs> no, Laura Loomer, yes. Yeah, friend of the pod, Back. Laura Loomer. Fun fact, yeah. uh, uh, she was the original one of the original three, and then I replaced Laura. Um, after, AJ after is just Laura Loomer after yet another uh, facial surgery. Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm incognito. Don't tell anyone. Uh, he, uh, he worked the box office at the public when they did Julius Caesar, and he mm. had to field all the phone calls of people <clears throat> decrying them and saying that they are uh they, they were anti-american and that they were all going to hell and like <laughs> cool Jesus. wrote a whole play about it it's really good but it's also very very scary and that was sort of like that was sort of the flashpoint i feel like because yeah. a lot of people kept saying lear it's like lear, you know and, and there, was, and there was that that downtown show here in new york that was the trump lear it was a solo show i oh, forget yeah. who was doing it but it was um, a comedy right it was yeah, a it yeah, yeah, yeah he had like a dart gun um, and of course, I, I always drew the comparison between Trump and Saturninus from Titus Andronicus. Um, I don't think the play on the whole necessarily spoke to the moment, but just that he had a sim- similar temperament. But our friend, the playwright Matt Barbeau, always insisted throughout this whole thing to anyone who would listen that no, <laughs> he was grabbing actually- people on the street, shaking them violently <laughs> and saying, Coriolanus is the play. You actually couldn't hear him. He was actually shouting that at the same time Posobiec was saying gerbils, gerbils. Exactly. But, um, <laughs> now I'm just picturing a little German gerbil. Huh? The Trump Caesar is awful yeah i didn't i didn't ever get to see it and the nice thing about doing something like coriolanus set in the present day uh no matter which senile person is president is that you don't you don't have to have a stand-in for that president right it's it's (laughs) it's the it's the veep of shakespeare's roman tragedies well and and, you know this is this (laughs) jesus christ This adaptation is also well before the Trump. Like this is 2011, and I and yeah. so this doesn't feel. I feel like there could be an adaptation that would look at this in the post-Trump light. But something that's so interesting to me about this movie is that it deals with the sort of nature of authoritarianism, the conflict mm-hmm. between uh, a control of something by the public versus a centralized authoritarian leader, that sort of thing. Well before this sort of dichotomy came to our shores in the way that it did under the Trump administration. <laughs> I was talking with a few people about how I think that the way that people interpret Coriolanus as a character is kind of like a Rorschach test in that mm. I think he's a very interesting character and I understand why he's not why he's not as compelling as a lot of other major characters because he seems simultaneously very and th- this is actually within the text too like he seems proud, but also dismissive mm-hmm. of claims to his grandeur. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he he's, has this uh, energy of this classic Roman servant of the state where he's like, I'm a soldier. I am an arm of the state. I serve them. 
And yes, I have scars and yes, I've done all these things because that's my job and I don't really want to lean on that, but I also do not under any circumstances want to have to answer to the Vox Populi. <laughs> like I right. have yeah. zero right. interest in listening to them or hearing their opinion of me or any of that shit. And I have utter contempt for them. Right. And so I think that he's a very, very interesting character because he's, he's very strange. And, and I, I, one of the things I felt was well done throughout the movie is portraying how completely alienated he seems by like everyone. Yeah. He seems yeah. alienated by being around politicians. He seems alienated. He only feels at home when he's in the field with soldiers. That's yeah, absolutely for sure. it. Yeah, um, or which, when it, violently yeah. chugging a bottle of water, yeah. <laughs> maintaining <laughs> eye contact with an old man. Why, why don't we? Uh, why don't we jump into it then? Yeah. Like a while back, a few months ago, we uh, recapped uh, Hamlet 2000, which takes a few liberties where it like moves parts of the play around a little bit. This doesn't do that. It cuts a lot, and it mm -hmm. adds in some visual action in place of those fucking interminable monologues that happen in all of Shakespeare where some guy runs out and is like, I saw him up on the yeah. precipice and he looked at me. And <laughs> so much is accomplished with he no cuts, dialogue in this out movie. Pretty it's much, very cool. Pretty much every speech, anything that's done as a soliloquy, right. you know, speeches to people are still there in, in truncated form. There are these still weird moments where people stare at the camera while they're talking to Coriolanus yeah, that I, I that don't know weird. about. Yeah. There's, uh, there's also, um, they move uh, the two senators uh, speaking about Coriolanus, like, we're gonna get him, uh, yeah. to much, much later, till after yeah. he actually oh, yeah. achieves the title of Coriolanus, and they're watching the, the ceremony on the screen, yeah. uh, which I actually think it makes it more interesting because, you know, you see the whole origin story of right. him becoming Coriolanus, yeah. and then it's like, uh-oh, but also nobody likes him. Well, and I think uh, it illustrates also the what it means to adapt something that's about, like, public places to a modern setting and we see that at the beginning right we have mm -hmm. the wave of newsreel footage yep. chirons kind of giving you basic facts then we have an actual like non-chiron just a, a title over the screen that says a place calling itself rome mm -hmm. which aj you you I went down a rabbit hole about this particular title we as we did sure I. did oh um, boy it's so interesting uh so that is actually a reference to an osborne play uh, that was never produced. John yeah. Osborne was a uh, playwright. He wrote, wrote back, uh, look back in anger, flashpoint he, he was, moment he was in British in theater, the angry young men movement. He he also found his way in sort of the British pseudo new wave. He wrote the Tom Jones screenplay, and he considered himself to be the Coriolanus of British theater in that he was <laughs> exiled for being too angry. Nice uh, in his yeah. in his description. So he wrote a play. The National commissioned him to write a play that was an adaptation of Coriolanus, and he wrote a uh, he wrote. It, uh, entitled it a place calling itself Rome. And when was and this, AJ? This was, 70s. I believe, the seventies. Huh. Yeah. And the National just refused to produce it. So <laughs> it, it's, it was never produced. Um, but a lot of the stuff that this movie does takes its cues from that play. Interesting. Uh, you can't find a PDF of it anywhere online. I read the first 16 pages because that's they, what the British Archive a, a, was uploaded. They gave it a first run publication back in the 70s. And I don't think it's ever had another edition since then. And it's, it's a just, shame because it's really interesting yeah. and really cool. The first scene is uh, Coriolanus uh, and his wife... Uh, in bed and it's Coriolanus waking up from a nightmare and then just like dream journaling but he's like huh. monologuing at the audience and it's all this just like weird like expressionistic dialogue and like there's this like 
I don't know, you're you're inside of his like yeah. emotional state in a way that I feel like the original text you really and, don't yeah. get that often. And so yeah. with Coriolanus, the Shakespeare play, we open with a uh, uh, sort of like the opening of Julius Caesar. We have a big angry crowd, yep, bustling about, uh, yep. and then these people specifically are hungry and calling for for some change. Yeah, there's in graffiti the that says "fuck the rules." Yes, in the movie we see this sort of left wing insurgent syndicate meeting in a meeting room before then heading out. I thought it was really interesting visually. And and I'm curious to hear the rest of you guys sort of what this reminded you of. A book club. I uh, I felt like the uh, visual language of this protest and sort of of these people and what they were doing reminded me specifically of the Seattle when, when there was the WTO summit in 99 in Seattle. And there was just this these crowds in this mass of humanity. And like, if you are somebody who is, I guess, of the left, I feel like you immediately find the, uh, this crowd to be sympathetic, which is interesting because that's not necessarily the point. You know what I mean? That's not necessarily what you're supposed to do. Josh, what was your read on that? Um, yeah, I did not, I did not view them as sympathetic because they came across, well, I'm sorry, certain people in the group Mm -hmm. seem sympathetic but there was, and throughout the film, the two, I can't remember the names of the two specific characters. It's the man and the woman who are yeah. recurringly shown as kind of like de facto leaders are shown in turns to be somewhat conniving and opportunistic, yeah. Yeah. Um, which the people around them pretty much seem to be straightforward and genuine in their desires and aims. Those two characters appear to be very, they appear to scheme as much as the um, the senators, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and so, in the early scenes, because she's calling for his death, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, actually, I think right away she's calling for his death. Pretty yes. much, yeah. And, yeah, and could, which is how the play opens. It's everyone yeah. just being like, "Fuck you!" <laughs> yeah. And Die. so, so, so it was kind of one of these things where I felt like, sure, absent any other context clues, if people are hungry and starving then yeah. obviously you can sympathize with people rioting for bread. Um, but those leaders come across as uh, much more cynical, sure. I think. Because of that, I didn't, I mean, I viewed them somewhat left, especially mm-hmm. if you're supposed to be contrasting I, them I with the authoritarian. Like yeah, yeah. But, I, feel like but just, I wasn't like, these are leftists. They're not pinkos, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. yeah. Well, in, uh, in the New York Times review of this movie, uh, Manola Dargis, uh, who I think is a wonderful critic, who we do not have the same sense of comedy at all. Uh, she gave uh, <laughs> year one, that Jack Black film, the New York Times critics pick, and I will never, never forgive her for that uh, because I went to see that movie and had to suffer through <laughs> Michael Sarah and Jack Black shenanigans. <laughs> I guess, in medieval times. But uh, she says that uh, the language lives as do the people who are present enough that it's almost a surprise that no one brandishes that timely protest sign Occupy Rome. Uh, and thank, thank God, God. Yeah. no one had <laughs> yeah. a sign that said Occupy Rome. Oh, but Lord. I think that that's sort of like the closest uh, analogy um, in the movie. I, I mean, I, I definitely saw a little bit of like Bader Meinhof, like those groups that would meet in Germany and then like slowly plot things where they'd blow off a banker's legs or something Mm -hmm. like this syndicate meeting and then heading out into the crowd and then mobilizing that crowd rather than a crowd gathering in the streets and mobilizing itself. Right. Whether that necessarily reads as left, it certainly reads as the contemporary way that would actually happen. I think that's a really good point, Brian, that like, this is not, this is very clearly not a um, spontaneous sort of uprising 
This is something that has been organized in a very specific way to achieve a very specific result. And what ends up happening then is that um, this group of people march up to the grain depot and they're like, we want bread. We want bread. And um, the, the, the way that chant starts is great, though, because this one <laughs> yeah. goes bread. And then yeah, someone else just goes like, bread, bread, bread. <laughs> they start sort of hitting things against the, the chain link fence. It, it yeah. reminded me yeah. of uh, a, a TikTok that I saw, which is Hank Green and a bunch of other people. And it became like a trend where you go bread and do a thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see well, if we can splice fact, in audio uh, from that Hank later Green on. was in the crowd. Actually, he was one of the uh, <laughs> yeah, right. He was one of the people of Rome in this movie. Um, so a- alongside this crowd, then we have uh, Brian Cox, uh, who is yep. playing the character Menenius, and he's sort of a senator. That one was nice because you could actually see his name on the screen. Yes, uh, he's yep. a senator who is just kind of trying to keep it all together. Um, yep. He he really wants to try it's to arrested do arrested development. Yeah, he's 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 he's. he's Unlike in, say, Succession, uh, Brian Cox's character in this is very much a sympathetic character. You very know. unnerving, actually. The whole uh, time, I'm just like, why is Hannibal being so nice? Right. <laughs> um, but he's trying to do well by everybody because he has sort of this, like, I think, old-timey sense of, I don't know if you want to call it, like, noblesse oblige or, like, just the sort of, like, thing of trying to do right by all of the different people and maintain yeah. the balance of power in such a way that uh, everybody kind of gets what is hopefully best for them. A true it, believer in the system. Exactly, exactly. That's and, a good and way so of putting then it. Then this is when we meet Ray Fiennes, not yep. as Coriolanus, not not yet, not yet, but as Caius Martius. Yes, and he comes out with the police and puts down this protest. Yep. Um, uh, they roll in an APC, some riot yep. cops. They do the thing, and this is where it really started reminding me of like the Seattle protest and those kinds of protests mm-hmm. was the way that they quashed it we need to take a moment just to talk about how good ray fines is in this movie (laughs) like i i was riveted at every single phrasing that he did i've i've never seen a shakespearean performance where i understood the language as clearly as i did with ray fines he hits the end of the line beautifully Mm. and makes every point it makes sure like like no sentence is too run on like he he nails like every single hitting the end of the line in this particular play is also really tricky because most of the big speeches a lot of the dialogue in this play ends halfway across the line Mm. gets interrupted and starts then the next speech starts at the halfway point of that line um you don't see that a ton in shakespeare but you do in coriolanus well he's he's entering his jazz period uh, shakespeare at this point (laughs) right this is where we start yeah this leads us to like the winter's tale this is his sergeant pepper era um (laughs) you get a sense that again he's a soldier and doing this sort of duty is just an aggravation to him. Hmm. Um, And the way Mm. that he delivers the speech, both to the ostensible leader of the mob and also all the people around him, he's just like, and I guess that's the thing is where like comparisons to the, like the Rota army fraction and, and the sort of Bader Meinhof stuff, there was an ideological core there. Whereas with this group, you know that they want bread and Coriolanus's continued expressed contempt for them is their complete lack of ideological uh, constancy. Mm. Like right. he's like yeah. you, like you're going this way and that way, and today you love this guy, and tomorrow you're going to hate him, and like who gives a shit what you think? Yeah. Um, and right. it in in the very first speech, you know the way that he, because you know they, they do have a big rollout of the. Um, 
the rollout of the soldier or the police or the soldiers and the APC, but just the fact that he enters, he just pushes straight through physically like all mm-hmm. these shields and just goes straight up to those guys. Um, and this is something that continues. And I mean, you, one thing I thought was interesting is that um, obviously there's a sense of, you know, in the old world of the military leaders that are at the vanguard. And mm-hmm. one of the funnier things about the scene in which he achieves the title of Coriolanus, like in the field, is that you have ostensibly like a very high ranking patrician military officer who is running point and like gunning yes. people down. You're <laughs> like, right. what are you doing up here, man? Right. right. He even, he even has his helmet off. Yeah. You know, he, yeah. He like whips he's the it only off. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's got blood running down his face. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit, yeah. but I, th- I think you're right that, you know, it's, it's interesting. It, what happens in this scene really sets up what we know about Coriolanus as a character. Well, not, yeah. it's not Coriolanus yet. What we know about, um, Martius as a character, yeah. which is that, he everyone's uh, is, favorite play Caius Martius exactly <laughs> the tragical history um you know we know that Marvin he's, Martius was a much uh less popular follow-up made by God the Looney Tunes right <laughs> well that's why he has the helmet so we, we know that he is very direct he's very to the point he does not suffer bullshit lightly and at the end of the day he holds the public in some level of disdain that's that's really yeah. kind of what we learn from how this whole thing is set up. And then we sort and, of and they, they make sure not to go into full like um, Adam Curtis footage. You know, it's not he doesn't like mow them down. This isn't just because yeah. uh, yeah. all these people come back. Right. Uh, you don't see just pools of blood. They just push them all back. Right. Mm-hmm. He's not some fucking psycho. Right. right. He says very eloquently. I don't like you. And here's why. Right. Anyway, you're not getting any bread today. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what Coriolanus has against geese, but he uses it as an insult <laughs> a lot. You men have the soul of geese. And well, I was like, late, geese are ferocious, man. Yeah, <laughs> well, one one famous thing about Shakespeare was that late in his career, he was beset by geese. All the time, he'd turn a corner, a goose would attack <laughs> Little, little They're known. so easy to strangle. It's just such I a... I absolutely loved how... Yeah he finished his speech that delivery of go get you home you mm. fragments yeah yeah yeah, like, yeah. it's yeah. Uh, the line itself is just really great but this just like dismissive get the fuck out yeah. of here energy yeah. was just incredible <laughs> so yeah there's some, there's some really great lines in this play let, let, like i'm surprised it's not more well known it was uh, it borrows certainly a lot i think from the paul greengrass approach of things yeah. of the board which, which is which is why barry Aykroyd, who's the dp here and in, in hurt locker and stuff eventually becomes paul greengrass's dp on captain phillips uh, it, uh, it makes a hundred percent sense and like united 93 but he didn't work on the born movies funny enough he just aped the style perfectly it's like every like in between takes Ray Fiennes would be like, hey, did you shake the camera enough? Shake it more. <laughs> the 2010s were an awful time that's, to have motion sickness. That's what I'll we just call the that. uh, that's what we call the Star Trek school of cinematography. <laughs> <laughs> you know. um, so after uh, this scene, uh, we immediately jump over to the other main place that we are going to be spending most of our time in this movie, which is Volsius. And there's a dude there named Phidias who is played by just a fucking steely-eyed slab of meat, Gerard Butler. 
Um, I, who, I've got to say, this is probably the hottest he is. In, oh my in god, <laughs> yes. it's really like impressive. Um, like even three hundred, it's just like no, it's it's actually this one. I really, <laughs> I really liked the way that they uh, worked this scene because it's a guy who has basically come from Rome. Uh, they've captured him. And uh, they're grilling him for info. And I don't actually, I don't remember in the play what happens, but in the movie, it's like a, they've got him in front of a camera. And once they've gotten the information they want out of him, uh, they actually shoot him in the head and uh, send the video back to Rome, which I thought was very metal. I thought it was very well done. And I thought that like it, it, it set the stakes clearly. It's like, okay, this guy's not to be fucked with. Um, he yeah. has a plan. He, uh, really wants to show everybody in Rome who is the boss, you know? Yeah. And it's also, there's something very kind of improvisational about him killing the soldier too, that Mm. I really loved. He's uh, the soldier says basically, you know, uh, we're at peace now, but they say like one little thing could like set everything off. And, uh, who's George Butler's character says, Oh, one little thing, huh? You mean like killing you and bam, like just (laughs) blows his brains out. And it's just like, so this guy is, is, is merciless. He's very, uh, he's very tactful and uh, Coriolanus uh, wants to smooch him very, yes. <laughs> very hard. And, and we see this as a series of, you know, Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty style uh, combat scenes, which, like we were saying earlier, normally would just be represented by interminable soliloquies yes. of somebody standing on a hill and telling you what is happening for the most part. Well, and, and as we're getting into the battlefield, we then cut away to. Volumnia and Virgilia, mm-hmm. Vanessa Redgrave and Jessica Chastain playing yep. his mother and his wife, respectively. This is this is the one thing I knew from Coriolanus in school. This is the story that everyone has about this play in Shakespeare is that when people do Coriolanus, they always try to cut this scene. Mm. But then they find out that the whole reason that scene is there is so you can get your actor into his armor. And if you cut the scene, you can't get Coriolanus in his armor. Really? Oh, I love that. It's so technical. But I, I, that's interesting. But though. It's, it's it also works. It, I, the scene actually is, is fine, at least in the movie. Maybe I not think in the so. Play. I, I think that like from my perspective, at least and I'll be curious to hear what you think, Josh. But I, I think that this scene sets up something that pays off later on. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's <laughs> the is maybe the moral of Coriolanus. Mom bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I really feel like there's a lot of tone setting about uh, Volumnia and her. Like, I, I feel like it's nice that Virgilia and Jessica Chastain gets more screen time, even though really she doesn't have that many lines mm-hmm. in the end. Um, it's cool that there's more space given to her character and kind of like what she has to deal with. But in terms of as a driving force throughout the movie and ultimately the cause of the tragedy of Coriolanus is his mother and her entire attitude in this opening scene for her, uh, that's her, that's what she's all about. And yeah, I think if you cut that, I mean, you'll still get echoes of it later on, but this shows that very early she is just interested in him being glorified yes. and getting high office. That's yep. what she's all about. And, 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 the and way also th- his sex life. Yeah. <laughs> True. Yeah. 
in the, in the way, the way this is Vanessa Redgrave and Tommy Wiseau's hair saying so anyway Coriolanus how is your sex life well, I, I always think about like how how Shakespeare was trying to write things and sort of you know pitching them to the monarch right and at this point James the first has been king for a little while now um, Macbeth was obviously written to appeal to his paranoia around witches which was uh, apparently ill calibrated because that play was then not done very much in Shakespeare's lifetime you after the first time it was much. done in court. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> too many witches. Oh, and well. uh, I liked it, but too many witches. <laughs> that was uh, Manila Darchus's review. So of I wonder as well. if, if like these later Jacobean era plays where he's writing about bad mothers is also trying to pitch to King James a little bit. <laughs> Interesting. Um, in, in the content of the I mean, that's scene, why Gerard Butler's in there, right? Uh, you have a Scotsman well, yes. representing James. Um, the, the content of that's the right. scene, That's right, he's a big then, fan of Gerard Butler specifically. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of back and forth here about, like you said, Josh, um, honor and valor and all of those sorts of things. And I thought it was so interesting the way that Vanessa Redgrave played this um, because I, I agree with you that like, not, obviously the text is very much her talking about how like he's got so many wounds. And also if he dies, like that's fine because he'll at least have glory and it'll bring glory to us. And I would rather have like, she says something like, I'd rather have like a dozen kids who would die in glory than like one kid who lived or some shit like <laughs> yeah, that. Like it's just insane. Crazy. It's completely deranged. <laughs> crazy. Wow, cool mom. Yeah. (laughs) And in the way that she plays it. I think it's interesting too. Coriolanus has 25 scars at the beginning of this play. Right. And in the same, uh, in in a similar or a parallel idea, when Titus Andronicus comes home at the beginning of his play, he has 25 dead sons. He had a lot of kids. Who knows why? Because Coriolanus killed uh, all of his sons. (laughs) Each one of them got a one one. hit against Coriolanus before they died. Um, oh, the Shakespeare Cinematic Universe. Let's go. The SCU. Dark Universe oh, 2. We're going. God. We're doing no, it. No, no, please. This is like, this is the, the, in this era, if you say anything, it will manifest. And I do not want that to happen. Corey Lane um, is about to be stabbed. A portal opens. Uh, out walks Bottom the Weaver saying, we gotta go. <laughs> um, uh. Wow. So um, one other thing that I want to note about this scene that I think is worth is worth noting is that this is happening in the palace. Right. And the way that this is set, we are cutting from a very loud, very jarring, you know, very real feeling in combat situation to this world where we are able to tell just from the way that it's set up, they have no connection to what's going on on the ground. They, yeah. they have no idea. It's so good. And the the points they cut away to, it's just, it, it creates such a wonderful picture yeah. of this society. And, you know, I think ultimately Coriolanus' story uh, where our protagonist is a gun that then uh, <laughs> becomes a different gun and then develops one emotion and then is killed for it. Um, <laughs> it is really wonderful to see him in his element yeah. and how out of his element he seems when he is in like the highfalutin mansions and like sure, expected yeah. to have some sort of civility. So uh, a couple more things then that happen, you know, after they have this conversation, Daddy Roy shows up. Hereafter, I'm going to refer to Menenius as as uh, Logan Roy, and if you don't like it, you can um, deal with it. I, I, I was promised Daddy Roy. Can Daddy we, Roy, can we, can, can we refer to him as Daddy Roy? We can Roy? refer to him as Daddy Roy. If, if you um, don't like it, you can say, fuck off, God damn it. <laughs> I, I w- that, was, that was one thing that I was really sad about, was that um, Menenius never said, go on, 
Fuck off. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. This this is not the uh, Edward the Second movie that Derek Jarman did, where he threw in F words. We then cut it. back to the battle after after uh, Daddy Roy shows up and is like, "Hey, great news! There's war happening." Um, then <laughs> we did it. Now we've got Martius, <laughs> and he's just out here killing dudes. Like he's yeah. just fucking going for it. And here's what I thought was interesting when I saw the trailers for this movie. You know, back when it was coming out, I thought that they had fully modernized it and it was basically being set, you know, with the battlefield being the Middle East. Mm, yeah. And it's very clear here that it's the Balkans. Right. Yeah, um, it was shot I mean, in Serbia. It was shot in Serbia and Montenegro, but they didn't do anything. It's, it seems like they didn't even have a conversation of like, should we try to make it look like Fallujah? Should we try to make it look like uh, Northern Ireland or, or something mm-hmm. like that? They're just like, it's it's the Balkans. They're right. They're putting it kind of into the past a little bit people do have cell phones and such but they're also kind of a little bit outdated cell phones yeah too. it's a flip phone but anyway so we're on the battlefield old Martius is kicking ass taking names he oh, has yeah. blood pouring down his face which is actually why I, I used to get this confused with the Titus one because of the blue on Anthony Hopkins face oh, yeah. Yeah. and so I, I always sort of conflated these two movies in my in my head very different films <laughs> quite, quite very different films um, yeah, there, there's no part where he imagines his son uh, as a sheep with his son's face uh, no but and you know what I think I think it's a little worse for it. Uh, <laughs> and then he comes up against the love of his life, Aphidius. That's right. Gerard Butler uh, himself. And they decide to go to quote uh, Aphidius himself, beard to beard. Beard to beard. And uh, do, have Let's themselves a little out. knife fight. Yeah, and it's 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 pretty. Which is which is also hot. not not bringing up the fact that beard is also Elizabethan slang for pubic hair. Um, <laughs> oh my god, is that true? Which is yeah, that's true. Yeah. Is that, do you do you think that he was intentionally going for the homoeroticism there in Shakespeare as, in writing yes. it? Yeah, yeah, right? I think so. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, because he talks about like uh, I I don't have the exact quote, but the, the later part where he he joins up with Tilius Aphidius, where he he talks about the the feeling of being in bed with his wife and compares his relationship to him with that. Like, I don't think that an Elizabethan audience, which had sort of a different view on sexuality than, than you might think that they do. Mm. I don't think that, that they would have any other way of interpreting it. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, And it's, it it is, it is fascinating to watch that because that was also brought up um, in uh, the Osborne play as well. And that was one of the more like controversial things that he included that there was like a gay romance between these two, which which wasn't the first time for Osborne. I don't think at that point. Yeah. But it was also like did later. It's text. Do you know what I mean? It's not like we're reading into this too much. They're like literally talking about being in bed with each other. I'm I'm so interested in the way that this combat works because the front of this movie is so combat heavy uh, and the front of the play is combat heavy. But after this beginning part, there isn't that much combat anymore. And um, it, but but it's important that they get it right in order to set the stakes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I guess I'm curious to hear, because obviously a big part of what you have done is, you know, a, a, as a designer and, and stuff like that has been combat related. It's about making sure that the stakes are correct, that it's telling a story through those mechanics and i'm wondering what you thought about the way that this was staged in the combat and the story that that told um i think like i said i I think it's interesting because they have to balance what is a very early modern let's say a renaissance Mm -hmm. or a medieval or a roman heroic general concept which is is so integral and central to who coriolanus is but also very in keeping with whether it's myth or reality the idea of Henry V, you know, the Duke of York at the Vanguard, like all this yeah. shit. Right. Um, right. 
so but it's also modern combat with guns where that's fucking stupid right like why would you do that (laughs) um and so i think you know and when i was watching it i was kind of laughing a little bit because i was like why is this guy up here but in the back of my mind i'm like well they gotta do it this way they can't they can't have this dude like calling in an airstrike from right. a, a hill like 10 miles away. Like, come on, he's got to he's got to be in the thick of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I thought that they did a really good job of it. And I think that because they had already established this, whatever it is, the relationship between Ophidius um, and Martius, the idea of them coming in and like, you know, going knife to knife I'm like, sure. Okay. I buy this. Like these guys are just like, yeah, "Yeah, we're going to go at it. And again, like it needed to be, he needed to be really heroic Mm -hmm. because when he comes back, they're like, shit, dude, you just earned cool guy title. Number one, holy crap. Like you're getting the key to the city. So if it were just kind of some like little skirmish where he's like, yeah, we did well. That's not, that's not going to do it. Right. You need to see him being a badass. And so I thought that they did a pretty good job of, of maintaining the myth while right. making it feel fairly believable within a, a contemporary military context. Yeah, I, I agree. I was surprised at how much I believed, like, because what ends up happening for, uh, listeners who have not seen this adaptation, which is probably almost all of you. Um, <laughs> what, what ends up happening is after, after um, Martius uh, runs around killing dudes, he then with his troops advances and ends up in a room directly across from Phidias. And at that point, they Boss both fight. make the decision to drop their guns and all of the troops that are with them just sort of step back and they have this like fucking proper mano a mano brawl. And they go through cool. a window. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they um, fall through a freaking window and they're only stopped because of an airstrike. Right, uh, exactly. Yeah, to your sure point about calling it airstrikes, Josh, yeah. like they do <laughs> it, but it's Whoopsie. for a, it's for a different like every reason. other general is just in an office, just not Coriolanus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And they're yeah, like, fuck that guy. Do you think we should do this? Like our top general is in there. Do you think we should do this? It's like, no, got to do it. These yeah. fucking artillery cannons have been locked and loaded for months. Like after they take that incoming, both sides retreat. At this point, then Martius is uh, there's this big ceremony where they name him officially Coriolanus, which is like the grand title of the cool, the coolest guy. Like you said, Josh, like yeah. cool guy. Number yeah, one. He's so he's, cool that Aphidius is looking at a corpse of a child uh, in his town and says, "Ugh, this is terrible. God, that guy's so cool. He killed so many. He killed so many women and children. God, I respect the shit out of that guy. Yeah, yeah. He he wrecks this town so bad that they go and they they name him after the after town. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That would be like if someone named me Grand Rapids Brian. <laughs> Did you destroy Grand Rapids? Is there something we need to know? The about charges you? are pending. Uh, yeah. uh, there, There's there a lot of allegedly we have to throw in legally here. limitations you know, that yeah. we have to wait out a little bit. Yeah, but I, don't I went, ask the people at Founders about me. That's all I, I'll say. Uh, I went to college with Brian uh, in Grand Rapids and can in fact attest that he destroyed parts of very good yep. not um, as much as it destroyed me there we go there we go <laughs> gerard butler is still waiting in grand rapids for brian to come back <laughs> oh I'd so they can go return to beer um. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> ironically brian you're the only one of us in this call right now who doesn't have a beard which i think is kind of funny that's true 
We do all have glasses. That's true. True. So Martius comes back, and again, there's this big ceremony. And the thing that I noticed about this was, again, to go back to the point of Vanessa Redgrave's performance here, the way that she talks about the scars, the way that Daddy Roy talks about the scars, the Mm. way they all talk about the scars, it doesn't mean anything to them. Yeah. When it's like, well, he had 25 before. Now he's got 27. That's pretty cool, right? Like, that's the Well, then she, like, turns and she's like, every one of those scars means uh, Volsky and Grave or whatever. You know, it's just like, yeah, you should have seen the other guy. It's it's like (laughs) Titus and his 25 dead sons, right? Which, which, when Durenmott adapted Titus Andronicus uh, in the 70s, he always has people getting the number wrong and Titus just has to keep correcting them. That's very funny. <laughs> That's a good bit. That's a good running That's incredible. Bit. Even um, Lavinia and it's her brothers. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, I mean, you know, it's like the Ninja Turtles. You know, you can only remember four. And then, you know, if you get any more, get to the seven dwarves, you're always going to forget, you know, three after that, right? That's just the, that's how the human That's exactly works. right. That's, that's exactly right. Uh, so is this the part where Vanessa Redgrave, like, gets freaky with Ray Fiennes in the tub while dressing his yes. wounds? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was, how do we hard. feel about this scene, folks? It's hard to watch. It, I don't. I don't like. I don't like. I don't like seeing stab wounds. Uh, that was. That was rough. Is the, uh, is it? I can't remember because there were a few scenes like this. But uh, um, is it where we have um, Jessica Chastain is is like going around doing stuff within the house and kind of like mm-hmm. being mom wife? Yes. And then she like yeah. opens the door and is like, "Oh, sorry, I interrupted, mom." <laughs> yeah. Fucking tending the wounds yeah i'll come back later like what but it's is also going like on? some low-key horny energy going yeah. on there yeah, too like they lean weird. into the edible thing like she very much as the wife is like <sighs> okay but i again yeah, I, it's I like felt... this is one of the things i've had to accept a long time ago <laughs> no, and we don't and that, talk that, about it yeah that, that's what sure. i think is interesting is it, sure. it, it again it clearly shows that um coriolanus's mother really has the key female influence and hold in his life, not his wife. It's not his wife doing this stuff. She's kind of like, well, I'm doing what I can, but when it comes to really who matters to him, it's his mother. Yeah. It's an interesting thing too, because like maybe this is a bit of a tangent, but the way that women are portrayed in Shakespeare's plays is always so interesting, uh, except for when it's not, but usually it's interesting. (laughs) Um, Because like, Shakespeare wrote really, relatively speaking for the time, complex female characters. Um, I would not say that the characters of, and you're going to have to help me with the names again on them. um, Uh, Let me find Jessica Chastain and Vanessa. Volumnia and Virgilia. Virgilia. Virgilia and Virgilia. Yes. Rolls off the tongue. Virgilia. (laughs) Which I guess is him referencing. I don't, I don't remember if her name is actually Virgilia in any of the history. I think he just might be making a Virgil reference. I think he just made it up. Yeah. But for Volumnia. 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 Okay. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, You'd she contains be, volumes. Yeah, you would expect her to be larger with that yeah. kind of a name. I wouldn't say that Volumnia and Virgi- Virgilia are, they're certainly not the, among the best female characters that Shakespeare yeah. has written by no. any stretch of the imagination, but they do have clear and specific intentions, and they both sort of have their thing that they're trying to do. And for Virgilia, 
Well, actually, which one is which? Virgilia. The, the wife is Virgilia. <laughs> Virgilia wants to be the good wife. She wants to raise her son. She wants to set a good example. You know, very she much like She wants to have a British accent. And she wants to have a British accent. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas Volumnia wants to, I don't know, what, what would you say her motivations are, Josh? Oh, she wants her son to be raised to the highest position that he can be. She wants yeah. glory for, she wants glory for her family and her name and her line. And that glory can be him coming back dead, which she makes clear. Right. Right. She's okay with, she's like, she has an heir. She has a grandson. So like no big whoop. Um, Hand it off to the next one. Yeah. Him being, (laughs) him being, you know, attaining a, a, a title and a position. Yeah. In and of itself. It's just because it's glory. And I think also, uh, Virgilia, you do get the sense, at least ostensibly that she wants Coriolanus to be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like she wants, or she wants Martius. She wants her husband. Like she cares about her husband. I yeah. don't, you, I never really get the sense that Volumnia really cares about her son outside of him as an engine for mm-hmm. the glory of the yeah, family yeah, yeah. at yeah. any yeah, point. What, what he, what he represents as opposed to who he is. Exactly. I do wonder sure. if like she would actually want to be a warrior. Like if, if that was a custom of the time, if she would have actually gone to war. I, I think Coralina's that's, a, place, that's a pretty his... astute assessment considering where we see her towards the end yeah. in her yeah. uniform. <laughs> Which we'll get to. Yeah. Uh, but that was an interesting costuming choice. I agree. Yeah. So after this whole situation happens, after uh, Martius has been named Coriolanus, it's happily ever after, right? Uh, he yeah, he's goes doing on great. and everything's he, fine. It's fantastic. But what happens next, though, is that uh, a bunch of people now want him to run for consul. Yeah. They want him to be sort of the leader of Rome, and he doesn't really want to do this, but they just kind of like make him do it. And a big part of the, um, I guess, I guess part of what becoming consul entails is that it, there's there's two things. First of all, uh, he has to go to the Senate and yep. the Senate has to approve him. And then he has to go to the people. And there's sort of like an assembly of the people who have he, to. He has him. to get he has to a, a, attain the the will of the plebeians. Right. In order so, to ascend his position. The first thing that happens is he goes to the Senate. Uh, and, uh, the, there's another guy, uh, who gives a big speech about like what went down. Coriolanus doesn't actually want to hear about mm-hmm. what happened to him because it is not fun. It's and, not cool. He doesn't he, like <laughs> in more of his conversations that he has with these senators too. He hates them, right? This right. is, this is Shakespeare doing the deer hunter. Now, you know, he's come back home. Everything else just yeah. feels fake. And mm-hmm. everyone around him is so complacent. And especially for where he is, there are all these incredibly powerful people who feed off of warfare and right, feed right. off of the people that he saw die in the field and and off of his 27 scars now. He, he doesn't he doesn't like this. He doesn't want to be a part of it. He, he's been he's been such a soldier that he was a soldier from from childhood. Right. He was since he could draw a sword. Yeah. And and this is not a life that he has any preparation for whatsoever and this is like where the movie just like dabbles and never fully commits to uh coriolanus having ptsd uh because he's standing in the hallway outside listening to his uh war crimes basically being listed (laughs) and uh, a janitor walks by and the sound of the janitor's wheels is just a little bit louder and it looks like coriolanus is about to go into like a panic attack mm-hmm. and then 
he the speech ends and he's able to walk back inside but it's like it's just that one brief moment of oh maybe maybe there is like an internal life inside of this human weapon uh that i think is very brilliantly utilized i wish we would have seen like maybe one or two more scenes of that of just him yeah. on the verge of actually feeling something and be like no uh, because boy howdy does he not feel anything but anger for the <laughs> no. next 30 minutes no. of this film yeah and, and really then what happens from from here on out is like you said a lot of anger um because he the senate is like yep great he's Coriolanus we love him cool and now he's gonna be counsel uh he goes and talks to an assembly of the people this is the second time now that we have met <clears> the <throat> people after the initial uh grain riot and he doesn't want to talk to the people about his wounds or show them off. And everybody yeah. wants him to show off his wounds. It's a parallel to the, the big central scene in Julius Caesar, right? Where yes. rhetoric sways the masses one yes. way and then another. Yes. Um, except this also has another shift because he goes out there. People are booing him and heckling mm -hmm. him. Um, and he gets up there and he just starts talking to people individually. Then he talks in front yep. of them and he gets everybody on his side. But, but his speech is not great. No, nope. Like he's not no, good at this. This, this play he's has not a, a very natural. low opinion of the people, I think. Um, it, it, which is, which I, I think, think is so interesting. Shakespeare's and, plays have very low yes. opinions of <laughs> people. Yeah, he was an elitist, right? But like. Oh, he's um, a monarchist. I think that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's he's oh, just most definitely. He's, he's a medieval or I'm sorry, early modern Englishman. <laughs> um, oh, God, who let the professor in here? Renaissance. <laughs> a yeah. tiny little professor. <laughs> I don't know. Like, what, Josh, what did you notice about like the uh, the way that this sort of whole scene plays out and how it flips back and forth? Because I thought it was kind of weird, but also kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, I thought it was I, I thought it was weird. And again, I could see that. If you're doing this as a play, you know, like thinking about it as from the perspective of if I were to direct it and stage it, I'm like, OK, mm -hmm. well, where would these people be? And I wouldn't be walking around and twisting around. But it's set in a a market like an actual market. And so he does these kind of like weaving asides with individual people like um, there's the big guy who I guess the implication is supposed to be that maybe he's an ex soldier or something. But he right. says to him like, hey, dude, look if you want to see my scars, I'll show you my scars, but not here. Like we can go off. And the guy's like, well, okay, cool. And so he, it's interesting because normally what would be sort of just spoken kind of around the stage to people so that the whole audience could hear it right. becomes these, his attempts at doing these more intimate conversations mm -hmm. to one by one kind of bring warm people up. And then he gives his speech and yeah, you're right. He's not good at this. And he, I think what ultimately wins them over is they're like, well, he seems earnest. Yeah. Yeah. His <laughs> like heart's in the right kind place. Of, like, he's, he's kind of <laughs> I, I seems can get a beer with him. Yeah. Like yeah. he seems yeah. straightforward. Like I don't sense guile in him is probably what they get because there's probably no guile in him whatsoever. Mm -hmm. He's just kind of like, look, this is my deal. And like, I'm yeah, a there's dude. not a lot of ambition in him. No, like, yeah, he, he's he just like anti Macbeth. <laughs> yeah, he just actually right. does not want to be there, but yeah, he has nowhere else yeah. he can go. So, so by the time he leaves, I think you're right. He's won them over in the sense where they're like, okay, yeah, like he's a war hero. Why not? Yeah, sure. they get caught up. They get caught up in the moment. You know, yeah. other people are cheering, <laughs> so they cheer too. And then immediately, the other two senators come out, and I wrote their names down somewhere. Sinius, um, I think, is one of them. Sinius and uh, something else. Junius. Oh no, it's Brutus. It's Sinius and Brutus. Yes, yeah. yeah, Sinius. 
Velutus yes. and Unius <laughs> Brutus. Sorry, I and can't, so of I can't Brutus. not use the classical pronunciation. <laughs> Brutus. Please, and so, of course, do. Brutus is the ancestor of the Brutus who will then conspire <laughs> exactly. against Julius Caesar. They're actually the same guy. Uh, and, he is you know a, this. and he is a descendant of, I think he might actually just be the son, because this is early, early Republic. So he would be a very close descendant of the Brutus who helped found the Republic, the husband of Lucretia. Mm. And they get up there and they're like, yeah, but did he show you his scars? <laughs> How do you yeah. even know they're real? Somehow everything hinges on the scar thing. <laughs> Wait, which, which was one thing where I get it. I get that it's necessary for the construction of the yeah. plot. Yeah. This for me didn't quite work in the context of this movie because it seemed just a little bit too silly. If that makes sense, stars no, 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 on no, no, his no, face. No. So, Josh, like Josh, Josh, the Roman people needed Coriolanus <laughs> to show whole. <laughs> I mean, yeah, full hole, <laughs> full, um, full hole. And uh, so then Ray Fines goes up and, and goatsies the crowd, and, uh, <laughs> and 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 then and then yeah, then he becomes the dictator, and he's fine. Everything's no. Great. Uh, what what actually happens is uh, Marcius uh, basically then once the crowd starts turning against him, he just kind of flips out, um, yeah. and he's like, actually, fuck all y'all. Uh, I hate you. And suck uh, my fucking nuts. Like, and the yeah. in, 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 in the, the public uh, let him know that uh, he they, they say, OK, well, then let's just kill him. Like they flip <laughs> so quickly. This guy can be the ruler of us. He can be the council right over to. Nope. He needs to Death. fucking die. Look, if I can't see that glorious Coriolanus <laughs> hole, <laughs> then we just Corey, gotta kill this guy. Cory Holane. Cory Holane. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. you Josh, thank you there. so much for we, coming we, on. We, I feel like <laughs> we, we need to see his his corial rectum. Um, <laughs> damn near killed him. I mean, oh, he damn near killed good. a lot of people. That's really good, Brian. Yeah. Oh, boy. There's been a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of back and forth in this section of just like yeah. the people, you know, them being like, you know, the people love him. They hate him. And then right. everyone being like, OK, well, Coriolanus has to go on a daytime talk show, yeah. I guess, yeah. and uh, convince that. everyone that, that he that that he's good and that he loves them all uh, while he's being booed. Uh, Jon Snow, the famous British t- uh, newscaster, makes his dramatic acting debut in this film. Uh, <laughs> He hadn't when ever I saw done him. that before. He hadn't played he had himself never, in another never, movie. No, really? he had never played a dramatic role. Well, I, I think it's so because funny. he's not playing Jon Snow. He's playing a newscaster. He's playing Jon Snow, though. but he's playing <laughs> Jon Snow. But his uh, uh, like actual work, like his actual Shakespeare, was really good. It's like, so solid. good. Yeah. I was so upset how good it was. This <laughs> sure is no- just you know, it's like. They all get taught that at boarding school. I'm sure. <laughs> what did you think about the, uh, the 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 daytime the daytime TV set where they decide Coriolanus's future? Like as a scene, it's one thing, but how did you feel about like the the way that they set this up and executed it? Coriolanus on Maury, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I got the sense. I think that if because they're trying to bring it into the modern era, like they had set from the beginning this idea of this Fidelis TV, right? Yeah. As Fidelis kind of encompassing media network. And again, like there have to be some allowances. Like, would they allow all these fucking rabble rousers into the studio to do this? (laughs) Probably not. But I felt like it worked pretty well because they, they kind of needed, you know, if, if you need someone to do this public act of contrition, more humiliating in theory than doing it just in front of the mob that you just said you're going to, kill and you had contempt for <laughs> right. is to go on TV and say it not only in front of them, but to the whole country. 
so that, or the whole city so that like, yeah, I'm super sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. I said, I think you're scum. Yeah, I mean, he, he's been canceled, right? He, he's yes. been canceled and he needs yeah, to come forth is, and like do his, his act of contrition. Apology. His, his notes right. app. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the 2022 adaptation black square Coriolanus yeah and then you see like clips of like the other notes in the notes app that just said killed more widows today <laughs> but, you know, especially especially because you still have especially the woman agitator who's constantly like yeah you like you know Beavis like yeah kill him kill him you like just super crazy <laughs> yeah. bloodlust for, for Coriolanus and um, you know again I, th- I really do like the scenes where he just completely loses his patience. Oh yeah. And this is just the, the, the best <laughs> where he, yes. he just yeah. completely goes Beautiful. off and his contempt and saying, no, I'm banished. <laughs> you can't banish, <laughs> banish me. You. Banish, banish, me. You. banish me. I'll banish you, pal. <laughs> and it's, but, but he does it in a way that it does not come across as pathetic. You're like, yeah, this it's not dude, petulant. It rocks. Like well, he's super just, yeah, he he manages to come across as sympathetic and to the point where even when he leaves, everyone is kind of like, mm, OK, I guess we got what we wanted, but we feel pretty bad about it. Right. Yeah, I, well, the, I, I was just like, they're all going to die. Like, yeah. I see that man yeah. screaming at them. I'm yeah. like, we've seen him in battle. And I'm like, these this like tissue paper to this to this <laughs> robot man. Well, in the way the way that that scene is edited too, uh, with the angles and in the, in the oh, quick yeah. cuts definitely recalls the battle from earlier oh um, wow, yeah i, I thought it was a bit much some of the angles but at the same time it did yeah. give you that feeling of like incipient dread of like what's gonna happen you know it was the style at the time it was the style at the time. <laughs> and it's, it's why i'm glad i'm watching it now because it would have just bothered me then when half of the movies were like right. this right and now it's like oh yeah yeah, this well, Paul Greengrass uh, notoriously wears an onion on his belt. Yes. Uh, <laughs> right. For every film that he makes. After then, he is banished. Thank, Thank you. you. You're welcome. Uh, we, we have this really, uh, this, this extended sort of montage of him hitting the road with a backpack. Yeah. You know, he's hitchhiking. Growing a beard. And then we see him growing a beard. Uh, and, and we see him with very long hair and a beard. Although, yeah, unfortunately, he, he not starts wearing out glasses. As you, and then he becomes AJ, and then he becomes right. Josh Sawyer. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> wow, we um, really are like a beginning, <laughs> middle, and end, end game beard-wise right now. Although, again, not wearing glasses uh, yeah. to show that time yeah. has passed or otherwise. But a couple years have passed at this point, obviously, because yeah. his hair is very long. He's got a long-ass beard, and he's an antium. And um, well, he ha- looking- his hair is specifically Nick Cage's in Con Air. Uh, yes. He has this yes. Yes. outrageous mullet happening. Yes. I was like, that's the wig. That's the one. It was uh, the style at the time. It AJ. was the style yeah. at the time. And so now we go from Shakespeare's The Deer Hunter to Shakespeare's Heart of Darkness. Right. Because yeah. now he is joining the ranks of the enemy. And what we see is that Phidias uh, is like walking around and everybody loves him. Like, which, which also Corey Helenus is definitely low key jelly of that. Yeah. You know, he's. Yeah, right, right. Ophidius is, he's a warlord. He is a leader. He's not right. just a fighter. He, right. he knows how to play the people and also run a state while Corey Helenus has, has no idea how to do that second part. Right. All he right. is, is a man of the battlefield. Martius is able to uh, tail Phidias back to his compound and, and, and comes in and busts in is like, uh, hey, you know who I am, and 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 fucking Phineas is just just blank. Which I loved. I love the yeah. way he played this, where it was just straight up. He didn't even act like he was a little bit had even the slightest idea. Because I think some people would have played it that way, where they've been like, 
hmm, I don't know. But he's like, yeah, I, I, I don't know, dude. I, Look, I see a lot of people. You know, I've, 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 I've gotten in knife fights with a lot of people. Uh, and Martius is like, no, dude, like, it's me. I'm the guy who tried to kill you. And if you want to just kill me I'm now. I'm the guy who sucks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and plus I got depression. Um, he's like, yeah, you know, if you want to kill me, fucking go for it. I really, like, don't have much left to live for it. It doesn't really matter one way or the other. But, like, if you want me, I'm here for you, baby. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, then, you know, they kiss. Yes. Uh, well, uh, always be my baby blares in the background on exactly. the soundtrack. That's not true, but it is. Uh, I'm going to edit that. And then, and, then uh, they have this this great like Jewish wedding scene where they're carrying a barber's chair. Yeah, I don't know what that was <laughs> all the ground. So it's interesting. So they what happens because there's this like cult of masculinity thing that goes on. Yeah. Because the first thing that happens is lovingly, tenderly, uh, Ophidius cradles his head Mm-hmm. And shaves his head. Right. Getting mm-hmm. all that. Can't do it himself. Ophidius does it. But after he does that, then all of the other soldiers eventually, like the barber chair thing, it's like they start inducting these people into this cult of Coriolanus. They're right. imitating him. They're not imitating Ophidius right. anymore. They're cutting their hair to look like him. They're shaving their hair to look like him. That, I think, was the beginning of when you start to see Ophidius go like, I don't know if it was such a great idea <laughs> yeah, right, right. to let this dude become a super powerful leader in my group. Yeah, it's the seeds for his downfall begin, yeah. I think, at that exact moment. When yeah. you get that like Olive Garden commercial moment with, um, <laughs> sorry, like when when Aphidius is like walking in the street and he's like, hey, what's up? And he like walks up to a dinner table like, hey, everybody, yeah. it's your buddy Aphidius. Like we're going to have a big family dinner. Yeah, and Here's when you hear your family, like, yeah, your exactly. husband. And that's, that's like his vibes, his ability to kind of move because he's a soldier, but he's a man of the people and all this other stuff. Right. But then Coriolanus, as previously stated, is not a man of the people. He is a soldier. And actually going way back to the first battle, there's that scene where he, everyone's like down in the fucking dumps. It's bad news Mm -hmm. bears. And we're not going to be able to win. Right. And he gives that speech and he's like, let's fucking go. And then, and nobody goes with him. And then, you know, and then they slowly raise their hands and he says, make you a sword of me and like runs off. And so he has that esprit de corps yeah, that like ultimate esprit de corps where people are like, yeah, this dude is the fucking ultimate warrior. And so once yeah. he gets in there and they they have that. The other thing that's good and not to spoil, but the way that <laughs> the way that Ophidius cradles his head while shaving his head. Yeah. gets echoed at the very end of the movie. Oh, I didn't notice that. That's that is cool. Ooh, yeah. You better go back and watch that, buddy. Yeah. yeah he, it's, Who let that tiny professor back in here? <laughs> he yeah, he cradles his head in the same way at the end of the movie. Um and so setting that up as that like that there's a trust, there's a high level of trust yeah. there yeah. and care and tenderness between them. Because the thing is those scenes with the men and the chair and everything, there are no civilians around. Right. These are all just soldiers. And so, again, we have uh, Coriolanus back in his element as king soldier. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone starts imitating him. And so it's like, oh, I, shit, I, I think dude. you're right, Josh, too, that like that is that's 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 his superpower. Right. Oh, that's yeah. his that is free to core thing. That's his fundamental thing that nobody else is able to do. Yeah. Um, and, mm. and, and on the balance, when you compare like all of his stats, like Phidias's build is overall OP. Let's RPG right? this. Yeah. Exactly. Let's, yeah. let's game it out. No, <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying though? Like yeah, he's, yeah. His, he, he definitely 
would be a higher quality build overall. But, you know, <laughs> More um, whereas Coriolanus like put all of his points into strength and speech and since <laughs> he passes uh, the rhetoric checks. battlefield yeah. leadership that's yeah. Yeah. exactly yeah. exactly <laughs> yeah. killing um, and battlefield leadership i mean it really like to esprit de corps when you said that it reminded me of Disco yeah it's like it's that actual thing it's that stat check yes. it's understanding the bond and just how to tap into that. And when he's not what in that he really element, needed was a couple points in Inland Empire. Exactly. Uh, so <laughs> it, it's um it's it's pretty interesting because recently I was reading about um Lansknecht, who are the mercenaries of the Holy Roman Empire, which is, you know, not quite contemporary, but a little bit earlier than this play would have been written. When soldiers stayed in towns, they stayed in people's residences. It was like bad and shitty and there's a lot of fighting and the civilians fucking hated them. And once they started saying, no, house them, they no, go away. You are in a thing called a barracks and mm. you're a soldier and you hang out with soldiers and they're all men and you can't have a, a ton of prostitutes here and like fucking dudes gambling with you. It's just soldiers and just men. And that I, and they, what they found mm. is they were like, Oh wow, <laughs> this is really good. <laughs> like when it's just soldiers with each other, they, the vibe is really strong. Right. And yeah, that idea of esprit de corps. But the thing is what they found is that they would then became alienated just like Coriolanus. Right. Like when they have to interact with normal human beings, <laughs> who are not soldiers, they just fucking melt down. They can't, they can't do it. So right. I really do think that this, um, this drew a great distinction between those two worlds of the guy who is a rebel leader who has to breach, be walk between civilian and military life and is pretty good at both versus the, this guy that is just pure military and he right. thrives in leading men into combat and that's it josh i'm glad that you share the official stance of the worst of all possible worlds on the third amendment which is that we should abolish it uh, <laughs> <laughs> this Don't whole play could have been avoided for the sake of our community vibes um, <laughs> hell yeah hell yeah speaking of good vibes uh yeah. things are going uh pretty good for coriolanus and his crew and uh all of their vibes it, it's so much so that yeah, you know it's fine. getting the people in rome a little worried yeah uh, not about great about this whole thing and Jon Snow announces that uh, Coriolanus has joined up with Rome's sworn enemy and is coming to the gates and that everyone right. should be very worried so they send Daddy Roy to uh, <laughs> speak uh, with Coriolanus because they knew that they had sort of a rapport. Brancox walks in and there's just a bunch of bald men facing away from him <laughs> as he has to like push them aside any one of them could be yeah, Coriolanus. they all know he's coming and yeah. they're all just intentionally standing in pushing, his way. Pushing them aside like in, in Hitman when you're walking Walking through a crowd yeah. of people and you're just kind of like it's the inverse of hitman because he has hair and everyone around him doesn't right, exactly. <laughs> everybody else uh, is 47 but he finally makes his way to the front and coriolanus is sitting like a badass on a tiny little chair yeah uh love that barber chair dude yeah. he loves that barber chair it's a this regular best sweeney chair. todd uh, john logan wrote both yes he did oh. And Star Trek Nemesis. Well, there we go. Oh, he wrote Star Trek Nemesis? <laughs> that movie was so bad. And, and The he Last also, Samurai. And yeah, yeah. He's, Daddy he's, Roy's mission to Martius doesn't work out. Like, <laughs> the, you know, it just nothing happens. And uh, he gets sent back. Yeah, home. I mean, it's it's literally it's just he's talking to a wall. There isn't yeah. even a moment where he's no. leading him on or no. anything. It's just nope, 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 nope. Bye. And he says he says this line as he's getting into his limo, there is no more mercy in him than there is milk in a male tiger. Yeah. 
which Brian Cox delivers with the flourish of a grand Shakespearean yeah. actor. He's so good in this movie. Um, is that and this is the untimely end of him, right? Yeah, he this kills is, him. He he, he yeah. goes down the he, road uh, on his wrist, and he that's he it. turns yeah. out to be more an antique Roman than a Dane, and he uh, slits his wrist by the river. Yeah, and so uh, Vanessa Redgrave then decides that the only way that they're going to actually save Rome uh, is that Martius needs moms. Right. There we go. Uh, and so they go and they, Fuck you. they <laughs> of all of the scenes in this movie, in this adaptation, this is definitely the one that has the least cuts in the text. Like this is yeah. this actually like all of a sudden the pace slows down to like Shakespeare pace. Yeah, I think you're right. Like it did feel the least edited um, and it felt very drawn out. I feel in some ways, whether or not it literally needed to be this length, it sh- certainly could not be rushed. Mm-hmm. Because we see this mm-hmm. man go through this big arc of fucking ultra hating, <laughs> you know, like the people and then Rome entire and then like joining up as part of this cult. You don't get a lot of time seeing him necessarily with the Volscians, but you do see that preceding scene where he is a complete wall. And you're right. Like there's not even a hint of him breaking down. It. He's just like, nope, it is fucking over, dude. Like I'm coming. That's it. So for it to even be plausible that he would let his mother get under his skin there needs to be that time of her working him down Mm -hmm. to that point otherwise it feels like a really bizarre heel turn where you're like what (laughs) like you know what mom you're right like i'm in the middle (laughs) of all these guys i'm sure they're going to be cool with this later you're right i'm just going to give it up it did feel conspicuously long pacing wise but like you said i do think that you need the space to make it feel plausible from a character perspective. So yeah, I I, I did think it was interesting. I thought the pacing was interesting. Um, I think Vanessa Redgrave did a great job of being fucking super shitty, by the way. (laughs) So this is like friend of a friend type of stuff, but it's completely plausible from, I've heard stories like this from all over a friend of a friend who was in the military and went to Iraq and called his mother and basically said like, I mean, this is very different, but the vibe, I'll get to the vibes. He basically was crying and he was like, I can't be here. I can't do this. And he, you know, he's like an 18 year old or something like that or 19. Sure. And his mom was like, you are not going to shame your family. Oh, wow. Like she just said, like, you're going to shame me. You're going to come back and everyone in our town is going to know that you are a coward and that you gave up and wouldn't fight for your country. I'm like, oh my fucking god! But that—that's like the 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 vibes I get here. Like, yeah. it's not yeah. the same thing, obviously. But this, the through the whole thing, I just could think of these military moms who are yeah. hawks. You know, they're yeah. never going to have to go fight. They're never going to have to do all this stuff. She will, and she said, "I'd gladly lay like seven fucking kids on the altar, yeah, <laughs> and let them die. Yeah. Sure, why not? Like, no problem. Because the thing is, how could she not know that in the end?" the Volscians are just going to fucking kill her son. Right. Right. But this is the only way that she can get, you know, safety for Rome. And then, like you said, her, her costuming toward the end, you're like, Ooh, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Like you got a, you got a sweet position in all this. Well, exactly. She kind of gets to have her cake and eat it too. Yeah. And I mean, the grandson is already 
uh, at least as revealed in this scene, he's already like, I'll go away and I will come back and I will fight you, dad. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's yeah. like, I'm like, not afraid of anything. He's already on the path. She plays all of her angles here, too. Yep. You know, and that's, I think, part of why they couldn't really cut very much of this speech, because it's written in such a way where she knows his most fundamental weaknesses. And so she has to hit those different points of attack in order for it to work. Yeah. And it's also that, you know, the Roman people turn on a dime. Right. But Coriolanus, it takes time to convince him that he was wrong. Right. Uh, And that's what makes him different and, you know, better than the than the Roman people in Shakespeare's opinion is just that he he is so steadfast that it takes, you know, his mother's evil manipulations to finally, like, make him feel things. Also, her her definitely taking a, a stance like she's about to blow him. Yeah, uh, at one point <laughs> that was weird. <laughs> she was uh, that was with weird his time. wife and his son, and then that one other lady standing back there. I didn't love that. So uh, yeah, he's uh, he is convinced to lay down to sign a peace treaty with Rome. Uh, and Gerard Butler is just standing there, like, dude. <laughs> I by the <laughs> way, <fucking> what <laughs> I loved at the end of this scene, his delivery, where there's a line where it's where where there's something along the lines of like. Wasn't that a moving speech? And he was like, yeah, it was really great. <laughs> like the, the way that he said it. And and to be clear, like, it's not just that he's convinced. He breaks down. Like, right. Yeah. Coriolanus, like, breaks down. He, he, he goes broken full by ba- his mother. Full on, like, back to being a baby is the yes. note that I took down. Yeah. Yep. Uh, he says that he, like, uh, he describes his emotions as if, like, a storm is finally broken or, like, a, um, a dam. Like, and you see... Like Ray Fiennes just absolutely break down and sob in front of his mother, it, which is which is such an interesting note that we have not seen from him in the entire film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's adds such an interesting color. And then, you know, he goes and he signs uh, the peace treaty. And Gerard Butler is very upset about that and decides to have one last beer to beard with him uh, <laughs> where uh, he, in fact, sends a whole bunch of his men to kill him for him. Yeah. Basically, yeah. it's shot on this open high. Highway. It's like this dismal, sad gas station that Coriolanus is just stabbed to death by a large number of his old followers. And then, uh, you know, Aphidius delivers the final blow. Yep. And they I mean, I think they actually should have kissed in that in that moment. They get well, he did so, penetrate you know, him. Yeah. But still, <laughs> I think it also could have drawn a little bit of a Judas Iscariot thing. Mm, but like, mm-hmm. you know, just like. a Sure. Yeah, mm. doesn't even have to be a sexy kiss. It no, can just no, no, be no, like no, no. A, it's already sexy. I mean, so it should <laughs> it should be a sexy kiss. But. And then they should make out. <laughs> tiny professor, you are too horny tonight. Get out of here. <laughs> it's me, I the think, tiny professor. Back again. <laughs> I did think it was interesting that so so again, it's um, it is shown that basically every person of power. Uh, really is a conniver ultimately, because again, there's yeah. the, the scene prior to Coriolanus coming back where um, Ophidius and his right hand dude are like, this guy's got to go like, yeah, yeah, he's got to. And, and it's not. Yeah, they're they're already working their angles on him. And then they just turn out it's they a don't very need practical to. thing. Like they're not. They actually the way that they talk about it before he gets there privately is like he's too big. Like, mm-hmm. we got to get rid of him. The way that right. he talks about it in front of the other men is, you betrayed us. But that is not the way that they're talking about it before he comes. So again, we have this sense of private conspiratorial conversations where people are duplicitous and, you know, like, 
basically shitty and not not true. And and throughout all of this, Coriolanus's whether good or bad is the only character that's really shown to be pretty uh, straightforward in everything that he says, and he yeah. doesn't connive with, and he hates conniving. Right. Um. I did also really like that. You're right. Like he sends a bunch of dudes because so he gets around with a bunch of guys. Yep. Ophidius gets a bunch of guys around him. And he's like, yeah, you betrayed us and you did all this shit. And he's like, and you're, you basically are a piece of garbage. And Coriolanus, like, even though he clearly knows he's about to be stabbed to fucking death. Yeah. He's like, are you fucking kidding me? And he just goes off and he's like, and he calls him boy. He's like, I did this boy. Like I fucking kicked your ass here, boy. Like yeah. I took this whole city, eat shit. Fuck you. And like, just straight into his face. And Ophidius is like, yeah, get him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, he doesn't even say, oh yeah, I'm going to fight you beard to beard again. He's right. like, no dudes get him. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think, I think part and of it gets is his last insult in by not calling him Coriolanus. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I you like know. that. Yeah. He refers to him by his old name. I think that some of this comes back to the idea of honor though, from Phidias's perspective, at least I think that Coriolanus doing what he did in the way that he did it was supremely dishonorable. He basically like betrayed fundamentally his entire constitution, all of the stuff that he said that he stood for, all the stuff that he came to him in the first place yeah. for, right? Like the whole idea was I have nothing to live for anymore other than, you know, revenge. And this is the thing that drives me now. And I think between the sort of uh, uh, sort of romantic relationship that the two of them have and the things that they are both fundamentally committed to, which are these ideas again, that permeate this uh, of play and, and movie of valor and sticking to one's guns for better or for worse, regardless of what happens. And for him to just fold like that in front of his fucking mom, you know, that that's, that's it's intolerable. Yes. And so if he had perhaps fought and let's say that he was forced to surrender in battle, maybe he still would have had to die, but it could have been a situation where Phillies would have been willing to stab him and, and go beard to beard with him one last time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or right. Like, well, but they also didn't get Rome, right? right. Yeah. like the, right. All, all those people wanted was, was Rome back. Right. Yeah. And so, he, 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 he fucking lucid the football from him at the very <laughs> right, last moment. Right. Yeah. right. You, so you have this person who was part of Rome, wasn't a man of the people, didn't really care for the people went out, fought another group of people, uh, kicked their asses, caused a lot of damage, came back home, said, I really don't like it here, <laughs> and goes to the people that he defeated and is like, yeah, I'll join you now, and then says, no, I don't like this either. Right. Because my mom talked to me. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he's he's a character that, that at the end of the day, I, I, I guess depending on what you want to do, but you can do whatever you want with him, but like Shakespeare himself has not drawn a line where he's like, yeah, we're supposed to sympathize with him. And I think there's always yeah. some degree of that with most of his protagonists, even though he is willing to, to go in all sorts of directions in terms of their self-destructiveness or whatever. And with Coriolanus, he's like, no, here's a guy just flipping back and forth. Um, yeah. To which I think now we can flip back and forth to our little break. And we'll come right back. It's <laughs> a great pivot, it's a Terrible, Brian. terrible. <laughs> well pivot. done. All right, folks. If you want more of this episode, we go into the actual history of Coriolanus, such as it is, and continued discussion about this play and how it applies to the world as we know it today. Go on over to our Patreon. 
Anyway, we are a listener-supported podcast. That is right. We are here only because of the wonderful support we get from our patrons at Patreon. And they include Aeneas Hemphill, Andrew Kilroy, Ari Rodriguez, Ben Ferber, Benjamin R. Alford, Bill, Bruce, Corby, Daryl Henderson, Davis Van Dominic Rocco, Dominic Russo, Earl Reynolds, M. Jarrett, Grace Owenby, Ian, JV, Nate Netsley, Nell Johnson, Octavia Immersive, Olivia Hernandez, Scott M., Tank, Tony Diddy, Trevor Strunk, what a hell of a way to die, with a very special thank you to Ashley Stoneman, Dara Swisher, Hannah White, Nikola Donov, Silverbear909, and Timmy Sexton. <laughs>